Hello and welcome back to another Kids Media Club podcast episode. I'm Andy Williams. Hi, and I'm Joe Redfern. Welcome along. Uh, and we are here as ever with the wonderful Emily Horgan. Hello, and uh, I've got a, a, a great guest today. It's uh, Alex Wiseman from Nine Story. Alex, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you do at Nine Story? And well, we'll go into all the details as to what we're going to have you chatting about on the show. Sure. Yeah, I um, have been at Nine Story for about seven years now, and I head up the distribution division mm. um, and look after acquisitions. So we have a sales team um, with great exp- expertise across the globe. Um, we also, I would be very involved with uh, co-productions and um, I'm uh, kind of responsible for financing our own IPs. I work extensively with our consumer products and franchise divisions and our development teams and uh, we make some lovely shows. Uh, previous to Nine Story, I was at Ardman Animations for 10 years where I set up the distribution division there and did uh, sold a lot of sheep-related um, programming. Uh, and um, and before that, I was at Entertainment Rights, which is now turned into DreamWorks, um, which was uh, kind of where I really got into specializing in kids' content. Um, but I started my career at Channel 4 Television in London, which is where I fell in love with animation as uh, the commissioning. They had a commissioning editor for animation at the time called Claire Kitson, and she was commissioning a lot of shorts from Ardman and working with the likes of John Coates on The Snowman, and I fell in love with it and decided... I wanted to be in the kids' business. So that's uh, that's me in a uh, snapshot. Amazing. Well, thank you for joining us. And do you know what? It does, it, it's, it's, the kids' business is so very easy to fall in love with. That's certainly, you know, I get up every morning and still thank my lucky stars that we work in this business. Frustrating though it is at times, makes you want to tear your hair out. Um, but l- yeah, I love it. And it's really nice to hear that uh, in, in you as well. So I'm going to jump in because... As you've just articulated, uh, you've been in and around kids media for a good while now. So let's let's start broad brushstrokes. How have you seen the distribution and that platform strategy change in recent times? You know, we're I, I don't know a time where it's been changing quite so fast. How have you found it? Um, yeah, I mean, it has it has changed enormously. Uh, the first thing is that it's just thrown up so many new opportunities, um, and uh, and it's just been so exciting to be able to delve into that, to maximize on that, to find new revenue streams, to be able to really control and uh, curate and moderate content, to have direct communication with fans to be able to really get that kind of feedback to collect data all of that which you know in the early stages of my career was not a possibility but would have been a dream is now possible and so that is a very very exciting area and one that we're really looking to exploit and make the best of in every in every way possible and we have a lot of really fantastic expert experts in in, in house who who are, are really maximizing on all those opportunities um, I love that you can look to make content um, and put it up on your own channel, moderate it yourself, make money from it yourself, and there's no middleman. That's amazing. So all of that is fantastic. But obviously, with the advent of all these new platforms and uh, just all the kind of the decrease in, in viewers in traditional linear platforms and linear channels, it just means that License fees have gone down, of course. Uh, the money pots are much reduced, and that has had 
uh, a major impact on all producers, really, because the cost of producing shows has ostensibly gone up, you know, uh, as as it would with inflation and 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 uh, rate cards to go up. So it's great that we've got, you know, people are using games engines. There's a lot of interesting things to look at with AI, using it as a as a tool to help um, make make processes more streamlined. But be that as it may, there is a disconnect in that. Uh, you have a lot of control. There is this kind of dream scenario where there are homes for content, which previously there might not have been, but it, the cost of making that content is still um, punishingly high often, and the license fees that you will get from these different platforms is is, is not quite enough yet to make to make it work. So we're in this middle stage right now, which is interesting. The kids' business always goes up and down. It has done forever. Um, and it's a very exciting time, but it's also super challenging in terms of getting shows. Yeah. I love that pragmatism because it, like there's definite hope. Like there, I could hear your hope and your, you know, your excitement about what the opportunities are, but obviously the, the money, the, the numbers need to work and that's the key thing. And I think that was like one of the reasons we wanted to get you on to kind of mine your expertise was to kind of understand, you know, the, the, the nuance on this now, because in, in ways it does feel harder, right? Even though there's, such opportunities and direct and the opportunity for a direct relationship with the fans which i think is one of the most exciting things for creators t- today um it is still really hard to kind of get get the numbers to crunch um is it is it the hardest as the hardest it's ever been or is it always just hard um it's a tricky one you know it was just incredible when the streamers um you know, threw their hat in the ring. Um, and Netflix in particular, of course, it was, I mean, most definitely a golden age for all of us because they were taking risks. They were excited about content um, and and they were able to also really, really invest in shows. And so I think that, um, you know, I'm so happy that happened and I'm so, I'm delighted that we have streamers as part of the picture, um, and I and so I think that was an amazing moment. And now we're kind of you know we're well past that honeymoon period, and um, I think everyone's trying to figure out well what's best for us as content creators. How do we build that business? Um, how do we safeguard it um, and future proof it? And I think the streamers and all you know kids content providers are are, are, are trying to figure out the same thing hang on, are we spending too much money here? Should we be asking for this level of exclusivity? Is that really the best thing for us in the long term? And so um, I think everyone's trying to feel their way right now. And I actually think it's a, I think it's a difficult time. I actually think it's quite a tricky time. Hopeful, but definitely difficult in terms of financing shows, supporting shows, getting viewers. Without delving into too much business confidential information, it's interesting what you're saying. We've kind of come through those halcyon days um, but, you know, looking at, at revenue and distribution revenue and, and brand awareness, and we've seen this fragmentation of platforms. And as you've said, license fees have reduced. Has that in your experience opened up new revenue opportunities that you, you've identified and that you can speak to? You know, uh, and has, has there been a, a reframing of revenue, maybe looking at it more as a longer term thing. You know, we've got this reven- this tension between revenue now, but brand awareness. And we all want to build a brand that's got longevity, right? Because that opens up longer term revenue um, generation opportunities. So how have you seen those revenue opportunities change alongside that fragmentation? 
Yeah. No, I mean, it's a good question. So, I mean, apart from what I just mentioned of when the streamers came on board and suddenly being able to green light shows in one go was just glorious and it's always a glorious thing when it happens. Um, trickier if you're actually trying to support brands on those streaming services because it's such a different model to linear and schedule, the scheduling is so different and so on. Um, discoverability is an issue. Um, but uh, obviously YouTube and, um, you know, other other uh, digital platforms, ABOT platforms, uh, advertising VOD platforms have been completely amazing for us. Um, we have a really robust YouTube team. We have over 83 dedicated YouTube channels, which are curated, beautiful channels. Um, and uh, that side of our business has done nothing but grow. Of course, like all YouTube businesses, it had a little kind of dip when COPA compliance came in. Um, but it's just been the gift that keeps on giving and a wonderful way of tracking and fig figuring out how we're doing with our shows and whether we want to invest more and whether we should amp that up and launch in other languages and all that stuff. And then, of course, you know, with the advent of all these amazing ABOT platforms, Pluto, Tubi, Roku, you know, all of those platforms, we're on absolutely every single one of them. And that has been certainly in the last kind of year and a half, our biggest growth area in terms of new revenue streams. Um, and uh, that's now kind of seg seg segueing into fast channels. Uh, we're gonna launch our own hub channel and we are getting kind of deeper into the fast channel business and really trying to strat strategize about how we can maximize on that as well. So those the, the, the advertising VOD revenue stream has been amazing and interesting and uh, and definitely uh, the biggest the biggest most pleasant surprise of the last couple of years yes because it's been it has been a, a bumpy few years uh, i suppose as well and so with, with all of those platforms to service like it, the question of exclusivity comes up you know and i know like rights can be carved that an avod right is not a digital online right and there's kind of there's kind of like uh, detail the devil in the detail there but like what are you seeing in terms of the question of exclusivity from a distribution revenue point of view, but also this question of brand awareness and the longer tail of what can be extracted from the IP? Um, well, it's the kind of like $20 million question, Emily. Um, do, you, do you not have an, it's just like a simple, let's give us like a five word answer, Alex, please, yeah. we can walk away and we can <laughs> bang the drum. It's a pet subject of mine. It really is. I'm actually <laughs> quite obsessed with the business of exclusivity um, and, and the merits of it. Um, because, um, you know, uh, I was talking about how, for instance, the streamers came in, they would take global rights, they would make major contributions to that budget. And understandably, they were requiring full exclusivity for that gift of rights for um, a pretty long license period, which makes complete sense because of their the level of their investment and because actually they would differentiate themselves from other platforms and so on. Um, but you know, one has to wonder if there is a show that goes on one of those platforms and it does not perform to expectation, then what happens there? You're just going to sit on it ad infinitum and not extract any further value from it because your business model simply doesn't allow it. It just seems a bit mad to me, especially with it is a different conversation if you're talking about a brand that you're trying to build. And so by that, I mean a brand which um, 
promises to be successful or you want it to be successful at consumer products level. So I won't even talk about a beautiful show telling an amazing story that all children should hear and let's make it and it doesn't have to have a single toy or book attached. But if you are trying to build a brand and if you are trying to um, make something that is going to be franchisable, then uh, what you want is partners. And uh, that is offered as part of the deal. There's a participation in back-end uh, revenues and so on. So it's kind of this structurally sort of there. But actually, in terms of being able to really support and grow a brand, it is just almost impossible, I would say, with a level of exclusivity that almost all platforms require right now. And 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 I actually think that um, I think that if you drill down into it, um, you know, the bottom line is it does not work to to grant full exclusivity with a complete holdback over catch-up rights. The big big problem is catch-up rights, digital rights, free video on demand rights, FVOD rights as they're known, um, is the big issue because the minute you've got a holdback on those rights, it means you are completely preventing the license of any other channel anywhere because all the other channels are doing nothing but trying to compete with the streaming services and the digital channels and YouTube. And therefore they've had to launch their digital um, their digital offerings. And in fact, they're all slowly graduating over to digital and will continue to do so. And suddenly there's no scope at all to do any downstream uh, licenses, to get any other revenues and, and importantly to grow eyeballs. So that's not win-win for the original investors. Um, and so, I mean, I, I can only imagine that once that I, I, I really think that is going to have to change by necessity and that what will happen is that these bigger companies will say, OK, um, we've seen by looking at things like Cocomelon, which is a perfect example, that actually something that does well or maybe was born in YouTube and does very well can sit on a number of platforms, including ours, non-exclusively. And it's just happy days for absolutely everybody. So. Um, so they have to enable that from the get-go, which means I think that there will be a lesser investment up front. And why wouldn't there be? And it means that we will have to find, you know, ways of financing our shows through the original international coalition patchwork method, as I call it, where you have several key partners involved and you don't have that level of exclusivity. Um, so that's what I will always try to push for. And for me, makes a lot of sense. Do you think there's a realization even from the streamers that that exclusivity doesn't always help them as well? I yeah, I do think that that the penny is dropping a little bit with that. I mean, I don't want to second guess the entire sort of strategy of streamers. I wouldn't know I would I wouldn't be privy to any of that and the dark arts of the algorithm. I mean, I just don't even want to try to imagine that, but I do from what I gather sometimes the protocols for the algorithms um, that apply to kids are the very same ones that apply to the four of us who will sit there and will watch Breaking Bad from start to finish. Um, and yep. kids don't watch that way. And I don't let my kids watch that way. And so um, so I wonder about that. I think, you know, all the great, great work that um, Evan Shapiro is doing is super interesting. He's talking about these walled gardens of exclusivity and saying it doesn't make sense. And I think that he is so brilliant at articulating that, that there maybe is some, you know, I think that that's starting to stick a little bit. And I just think also, um, you know, 
understandably, some of these great investors are going, well, hang on a second, we have to make some money from this. I mean, we've already seen the likes of Disney and 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 lots of other um, companies and media, you know, media creators going, okay, let's actually, let's spread the love a little bit. Let's not just keep it to ourselves. Um, and so I, I can't imagine it not going that way at a certain point in time in the next two years. And at any rate, I have my fingers crossed for that. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this all boats all boats rise notion is uh, it certainly makes a lot of sense. I think we we get it, <laughs> but it will require a certain amount of corporate deprogramming elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if you look at sorry, I was going to say if you look at the stuff that does well on Netflix, often it's um, a franchise or a program that has quite a lot of awareness outside of that walled garden. So. Um, so relaxing that exclusivity, I think it's proven that that kind of works even for Netflix, I think. Well, yes. And, and also, if you, you know, if you have, if it's as difficult as it, as it is to have discoverability, then it it's going to serve you to have that live, that content live on other platforms. It is ultimately going to serve you, um, especially when, you know, certainly on digital platforms, you can send people back that way. You know, cross promotion is, is not an issue in most mm. cases. Yeah, it's it's a great point and one one that we could probably spend the whole hour on. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a few things here where it feels like on the exclusivity issue and on the discoverability issue that it's it feels like the same problem that they're treating kids the same way that they treat every other audience and genre and it just doesn't work that way I mean for example on discoverability like I, I think there's there's a few there's a few issues of kids but I would I would also love to, to understand how documentary is doing do you know what I mean because documentary is like another genre on Netflix it's very much come up under that under that investment but yet it's quite niche and like you know that I, I have a feeling you know you get a sense there's probably a number of things that they're investing in that are just going to the wind because they're not getting surfaced um even, even though I know that's a different audience but it's um Yes, it's, 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 it feels like those two things come from the same yeah, issue. I'd be curious about that too. It's, it's a good point. Yeah, for sure. And, and do, just just building out where that, that idea, is there any nuance by age as well? Because we, you know, obviously preschoolers, very different to teenagers. So, you know, older kids, they've got their platform agnostic. They're, you know, they've seen the Mr. Beast's and the Taylor Swifts of this world, even just this morning, I was reading about how Taylor Swift is going direct to the consumers with her Eras Tour movie, cutting out the middleman altogether. So do you see that there's there's still some nuance in the kids sector by age? You know, perhaps the younger skewed properties need a bespoke strategy versus something that is aimed at older kids. And do you mean in terms of sort of exclusivity, Joe? Yeah, some platform kind of strategy and, and how exclusivity applies to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, for sure, as you said, the older kids, they're platform agnostic. They just want to find the brands they want to find and they will find them whatever it takes. Um, and with younger kids, because they aren't fluent in technology, they don't necessarily have that access, nor should they. Um, and they don't understand, um, you know, how, that they could find things on different platforms. I think that there is more value. It is understandable to me that especially public broadcasters would work 
um, really hard to protect that exclusivity. They have a public service remit. It's usually taxpayers' money, and they have to super serve the audience and especially provide localized content, uh, and they need to keep them there. So for for for, for that reason, uh, you know, the investment usually. Um, made by these public broadcasters is commensurate with the exclusivity they're asking for. And they are creating a safe space, which is um, a place that parents can leave their kids and be happy about. And that is very important in the kids' space. So I'm all for that. And I actually, you know, it, it is with 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 a great understanding that I would grant exclusive rights to a public broadcaster for a, sh a preschool show because it makes a lot of sense. What doesn't make sense to me so much is that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, whatever, I was licensing rights to public broadcasters would, where what they were taking was the linear rights and they were taking three transmissions or maybe five. And then it kind of moved on to the linear rights, maybe free and pay TV linear rights and uh, 20 transmissions and eventually unlimited translation transmissions. And then catch up TV came and it was like 30 days, cat five days, catch up then 30 days, catch up. And then it became completely unrestricted, free VOD, untethered catch up rights for the duration license fee and nothing extra paid. And the issue with that is that it's 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 such a stranglehold. Again, it means I can't launch my YouTube channel and support it that way. I can't actually carve out a second pay TV window. And if I've done one deal in one territory like that, and I've got a potential second window SVOD deal, which would be global, I can't do it because of one territory. And so I, you know, I really, you know, this kind of... Um, I call them for just in cases rights because they started that way and now they are actually using them all. But that's very punishing and I don't think that's necessarily correct. And I don't think it's fair because the, you know, what public broadcasters will say is, oh no, this is part of our remit, it's part of our service. It's simply another medium by which we offer up the same content. No, it's not. It's an entire different platform which competes very, very much in the same space as other digital platforms. And therefore, it is a completely different service and there should be a license fee paid for that, in my view. I feel, I'm feeling your scorched earth. I can feel the scorched earth that you walked on this one, Alex. Very eloquently argued too. I'm, I'm nodding. I have a question on that. Do, do you see any difference in who's getting it? first or more quickly you know is it, it, and, and maybe it's more on an individual partner level but like you know are, do, do broadcasters get it better than streamers do you know what I mean do the the new AVOD I mean I'm sure all these you know the newer AVOD platforms that have come out like you know Kadoodle and Sensical are like we don't like we'll just thank thanks for the content like we'll give you the ads you know what I mean they're not really in a position to be to be demanding exclusivity in that kind of situation like who who's getting it and who are who are who are collaborative in this in this way and, and understand the kind of all boats rise with the tide mentality. Yeah, I mean, I, there, there definitely is some movement in that and I'm not going to name anyone, but definitely with some <laughs> of the big players, there is some movement where they're going, listen, we get it. You have to launch YouTube channels. You know, we'll say we'd like to make some secondary digital content to, um, to support and to um, complement the main event. We're going to make it, we're going to put it on YouTube, our YouTube channels and you can have it and you can pepper it wherever you want. You can use it whatever you, what you, but we are going to do that. And it's the ones that say, that sounds great. We're up for that. And we understand why. 
tend to often come from, you know, they they have been in the kids' business for a very, very long time and they understand scheduling, for instance. Um, and they understand the critical mass of exposure in order to, you know, unlock consumer products potential. So I definitely see some movement with that. I think that the way that the AVODs are approaching the whole market is incredibly refresh, refreshing and super smart. We've all seen a lot of the research. There was a great deal of great stuff at CMC as well um, about actually how little it matters to people that they have to watch ads if they get the content that they want. Um, and I thought that was really, really telling. I mean, these, you know, Pluto and Tubi and Roku and those sorts of platforms, they were acquired for billions by the biggest media companies. And it's not for nothing, you know. So I just think eventually it's all going to be sliding in that direction. We know that some of these streamers are now introducing AVOD, um, AVOD uh, offerings as well because I, I think they need to. Um, but the AVODs are really smart because they realize we don't have to have exclusivity and we can all sit comfortably alongside. We're going to pay less money. We're going to get loads of content. We can keep feeding the machine. The people who love the brands are going to find the brands and they may find it on us and they may find it elsewhere, but at least they know they can find it on us. I think it's incredibly smart. What's interesting to me is that the owners of those platforms come from more traditional walled gardens and they must be going, um... Yeah, maybe we should just be doing that across the board now a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned AVOD there and, and earlier, like, because it kind of goes like an SVOD, AVOD. It, it's just in terms of like the way they've evolved. And then the next, the, mo the most recent one then is FAST that everyone's speaking to. And how are you finding, how, how are you finding operating in that environment and, and questions around discoverability on FAST and, and how you know, how, how much of an opportunity it, it is for brand building versus is it just a really an opportunity, you know, another way of selling mm -hmm. the rope? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the jury's out about fast channels. Again, it's a space that we all have to be in uh, in the same mm. way that we were, um, you know, 15, 18 years ago. YouTube is 18 years old right now. And in the same way that we were at the beginning of our YouTube experiments, wherever we were, um, we had to be in that space. We had to see, could we make some money? At the beginning, it was just usually you know, user-generated content was kind of making money, people exploiting our own content, and we started to editorially create it. And so we had to be in that space with YouTube, and my God, did that ever pay off for all of us content creators? I think Fast is in that place too. We really don't know. Are you going to make any money from it? I don't know. Is it really a critical, is it a critical space? I'm not sure. But the idea of having sort of editorially controlled specialist channels is smart. Um, and it's already certainly the big names and the big, you know, that's just great. Like I, you know, there are certain things that if I could tap into a 24-7 Faulty Towers channel, I just might do that on a day when I'm sick in bed um, and watch that for seven hours with great joy in my heart. So um, so I think that um, certainly for, for, you know, we would do it not as an exercise to try and make money off the bat at all. We don't expect to be making money, but we want to be in that space. And then just in terms of building a brand in there, again, I'd say it's like a YouTube channel. Unless you've got a big, robust, super potent channel with a lot of subscribers and you're going to put your content on there, then you're playing and you're 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 just teeny player with a huge, huge pool of content and it's going to be very, very hard. So I just think to try and have that expectation 
not the best thing. Better to just grow grow it organically, see what it's like, figure it out as you go along, test the best, learn. but not 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 have any big expectations around that. Yeah. Can I put well, sorry one more follow up on that too? Because this is something I've particularly heard in a European sense. Because I think fast in the US is just is a different is a different beast. In the European sense, I've heard that fast can represent uh, a competitor to linear when it comes to dealing out the rights. And a linear channel will see a fast channel in market as a competitor, and and those are considered linear rights. And then you won't get your, you know, your pay your either your pay TV or your fee to air channel that that's an established linear channel because you've done you've done a fast channel deal. Is that something you'd agree with? Well, I tell you what, which is I wouldn't put anything on a fast channel without knocking on every linear door first, um, because the fact of the matter is that especially when it's about building brands, Emily, as you know, um, uh, I need to have that those big anchor linear deals still. I do need them. And I need the second window as well on the SVODs and stuff, and I need everything I can get. But I need those linear channels. There is still a huge, a huge amount of weight in that for me. So, so the fast channel licensing premium content to a fast channel that's going to fall down to 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 you know to quite quite low priority wise until we really know where we are with that and until it can actually compete with the linear channels. Yeah, and particularly in Europe, those linear channels are still Very much just so important. Absolutely, for yeah. absolutely, so true. Yeah, yeah. I had a sort of follow up question on that, which was. If you, with a producer's hat on, if you're a creator looking to build a kid's franchise or an animated series, would you would you advise starting on YouTube or one of the other platforms or going more for the kind of a traditional route of talking to broadcasters and streamers? Um, yeah, I would choose the latter. I would probably recommend the latter, Andy, just because unless that person has got a very strong YouTube presence, affiliation, following, you know, I mean, meaningful one, uh, you know, uh, something with over a million subscribers, you know, something that's actually going to move the dial a bit. I just think, gosh, that's a massive uphill struggle. So you're coming from a place of not necessarily even being immersed already in this business that we're all immersed in and understanding the huge and and, and terrifying challenges of making uh, a TV series for kids, which is, quite a mad thing to do um so much more expensive than most live action or any documentaries or anything it's such a huge expense and i think that if you're gonna if you're gonna bank on youtube as being your your point of 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 launch and you haven't got something massive to go on i wouldn't i wouldn't do it I would go around and yeah. do the rounds and go around with my begging bowl and ask people to please love my show and come on board <laughs> and not take full exclusivity and let us help support it and work together in partnership. <laughs> wow, that sounds very familiar. I, I'm, I, I feel like I've been oh, there yeah, before. Yeah, just describing um, all our daily life. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then a follow-up question to that was, if somebody did come to you with a project, um, what would you say were the top three factors that you're looking for in terms of the things that you need to answer for yourself before you kind of take it on board? What are you pitching, Andy? What are you pitching? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, um, I mean, unicorns is a sort of silly word, but um, they, they are few and far between, you know? Um, and you kind of know when you see one, and it's the most thrilling thing. Um, and so it means it doesn't matter what genre, what age group, what theme it has, it just stands out. And 
I can tell you that, um, you know, one of the, the, the times that ha- that happened, um, I can tell you a couple of times that that happened in my career. I have also, there have been other things that I have found, but I'm not going to name them because we are actually making them um, and working on yeah. them and they're in production. But for instance, two that I loved, 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 but got away um, uh, that I just absolutely just, I, I will never really get over. The first one was Hey Dougie. And the other one was mm-hmm. Bluey, and um, wow. I just you know when when I, I I when I saw Bluey I just I just I just it was just a complete instant kind of falling in love thing, and um, so so those things are rare. I, I can tell you you know one of the things that I'm always looking for is is um, comedy for sort of for bridge audiences. So that kind of six to nine, six to 10 comedy, which can also work for family audiences. Um, The closest thing I could compare that to would probably be Shaun the Sheep. Um, Having worked on Shaun the Sheep for 10 years, there was a magic about that show. Obviously it had no dialogue. So that was a really major part of it. Huge amount of kind of um, physical comedy and slapstick and, and a lot of amazing character animation in there. And because there was no dialogue, it did incredibly well around the world. Of course, Mr. Bean has done that too. Yeah. Um, you know, a show like that, I'm always looking for something like that, which is just funny, which is a tonic. So, you know, which kids, they may not have any particular takeaways from it, but at the end of it, they kind of feel good and they have a nice tingly feeling in their tummy, you know? But it's also so versatile. Yeah, like, wonderful. sorry, a Sean the Sheep yeah. fan. It's like, you know, it's, it's six to nine, but it's also yeah. like, I can speak to experience like preschooler, my preschool little boy is, yeah, is a show on the sheep, like fanatic, you know, and it's as a, as a parent, my early morning ears, thanks to the program makers for making that show very mellow. And, you know, so it's something, it's something for, it's, it it has that appeal. And like you'd argue Bluey is the same. It has appeal for everybody in the family. It has something for everyone. It's not just a preschool show or a six. Yeah. Which is why, you know, make a feature film out of it, which is really unusual. Um, and mm. uh, yeah, so so those are the sorts of things I'm looking for. I really love comedy. I really love comedy. We make a lot of um, fantastic preschool and bridge shows um, at Nine Story, and we actually have some comedy series that we're working on right now, which is really exciting. And our animators love working on 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 those kind of shows. So um, I think that because we have so much great preschool, um, I'm interested in looking at bridge shows and we like, you know, comedy for slightly older kids as well. Um, so, but always looking for those unicorns and, um, uh, you know, kind of authentic voices. It's great to hear. It's great to work with fantastic writers and to hear wonderful voice casting, which feels natural and relatable. Great. I've made lots of notes. <laughs> <laughs> Expect uh, an email within the next couple of years. Andy Williams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no worries. It's interesting what you said, and, and just thinking back to uh, my preschool TV watching days, it kind of the 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 most you could hope for is that you you made a show or your kids found a show that didn't prompted a visceral reaction in you as a parent the other way and made you want to leave the room. But I still think about that when I look at things like Bluey and Hey Doggy, and it's actually, um, like you say, it needs to appeal to its core target. But actually, if it's something that parents find themselves watching when the kids have left the room, you know you're on to Oh, yes. Something. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, some parents, some parents are, uh, you know, they're not really sort of, I think when you're in the kids business, you kind of care a lot more about what your kids watch inevitably, and you're much, much more critical about it. So, um, yeah, so I think that we have kind of like certain standards. Yeah. Like, you must love the Pink Panther. No, what should it be? <laughs> is what I would say to them. You have to. No, yes. look at it. Isn't it funny? <laughs> so I, I just, in conclusion, Alex, because it feels like, you know, it's been so great to tap your experience and, you know, you've been in this, this industry, you know, and seen, seen a lot come and go. I don't want to say you've been in this industry a long time. Yeah, You're not going to thank me for that, but... <laughs> You know, it's like we've been through the hey, the heyday of streaming is is past. I mean, I think definitely last summer for a lot of people there was a lot of pain, and and honestly, there remains pain in the industry and and layoffs and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff uh, now. And we're kind of, uh, you know, the honeymoon period is over, over. We've had a couple of kids. We need to figure out how the family works. Like, what do you see? What do you see for the future? Like, what do you? How do you see it set, continuing to settle? You know, what are your? What are you excited about? What do you think the challenges are going to be mm-hmm. like? future forecast for us will you? well um sure no problem i know what's going to happen um <laughs> uh, i think that um there's going to be more consolidation in these mega media companies um and so i actually think that this period of of change and disruption is going to go on for probably another couple of years to be honest with you i really think it's going to take things to settle down particularly with the kind of major investors in the kids business and um, I think a lot of new strategies are going to be um, developed um, and uh, I think they're going to be kind of uh, future-proofing you know future-proofing their businesses and their approach to kids content my hope is that that will include a sort of a a relaxation of of exclusivity and also um, you know, I find it very hard to imagine a world where within a couple of years, you aren't going to have the heads of these companies or the kind of stakeholders going, wait a minute, let's just start selling this stuff. Let's let's sell this stuff. Let's make some money. Let's see some sort of a return. Let's see if we can rebuild. And even if we can't, let's make mon- money from some of the stuff that has been invested in, which cannot find its audience, possibly just because of discoverability. Um and I think that the um, AVOD channels are going to continue to just grow and, I mean, I think exp- exponentially. I think where those big channels that have money to spend and are being really smart about their business model, within a couple of years from now, they're going to be some of the main players that we're talking to day in, day out. And I think the Fast Channel is going to grow with that because why wouldn't it? It's really going to it's going to be great for, you know, all those of us who are actually interested in brands and are frustrated by having to pay for five, six, seven different services when all we really want um, is to watch um, more Ted Lasso um, or that sort of thing, you know. Uh, so so that that's, that's going to continue super serving it. Um, and I think, you know, content that is available for free, supported by ads or not, is absolutely the future of content. And the difficulty and the challenge is going to be, in that case, how do we finance it? Because the only way to finance it, if you're in that free world, is by being on many, many platforms at the same time. Um, and by having some stakeholders who do have a vested interest in a back-end participation that's meaningful enough to actually warrant an investment. Um, so it's almost like they may not be investing just in the rights, but they are actually true partners. Um, 
So I think that's kind of going to have to be the way it goes. What I hope doesn't happen is that the um, you know production qualities of kids' content is forced um, unnaturally downwards, um, and we don't have content that is made for kids that is smartly curated, properly researched, uh, age-appropriate, well-made, beautiful stories that need to be told, representative, authentic, diverse, you know, anything that is going to threaten that is a problem. And we are, um, you know, we are gatekeepers, um, those of us who have been in this business for so long and cannot let that happen because it is so important that children are offered content that is really well made and well thought through and that must not be sacrificed um so it's just we are all going to just have to be you know uh just a lot more um inventive about how we how we how we uh protect that but it is so so important and i know we're all you know we we get to see fantastic content because it is properly made so that has to that's sacred in my view here, here. Yes, absolutely. What a curious agreement. <laughs> yeah, what a great way to, to wrap up this episode of the podcast. Thank you. I think that that, uh, that last point stands and, and is a, a neat way to kind of summarise why we're all doing this thing, right? <laughs> why we get up every morning and we, uh, we do what we do. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely fascinating. I've uh, really enjoyed it. And, and Andy has got his notepad full. <laughs> of tips yes now <laughs> it's great thank you thank you so much thanks for tuning in to this episode uh, we hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did chatting don't forget to look out for future episodes and please subscribe and rate us if you haven't already until next time take care bye